Good morning, Redeemer family. One of the things I used to tell my children as they would go out into the world, oh, by the way, 1 Timothy 6, 11, if you want to, you can go ahead and put your finger there. It's going to seem a little bit like it takes us a long time to get to that text today. One of the things I remember telling my children when they would start to drive and go out is, remember who you are. You are a Horton. Be careful to represent yourself well. This is the nature of a family. A family confers identity, the kind of identity whereby the actions and choices of one can bring honor or shame to the others. It's the same in a church because we are all related to one another by faith. Paul, in this text, considered Timothy a son of his in the faith. And so he wanted to watch over him with words of instruction and advice to remind him that he not only represented Paul's ministry, but he represented the church of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has extended this family relationship from the apostles all the way through the church age to you and I who are here gathered together this morning. And the Spirit inspired these words that we're going to look at for us so that we might know how to conduct ourselves as we venture out into the world. Words for the family. The text says this, As for you, O man of God, flee all these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Let's pray. Father, first today I praise you that you are a God who communicates, a God who reveals. I confess that none of us here would have any idea who you are, what your purposes are in the world, or how to come to you, except that you have revealed yourself to us. You've revealed yourself to us in specific ways. I thank you for doing so by word, in ways that I can understand, in ways that we can grasp, put our arms around, see who you are. Thank you, Father. You are kind. In Jesus' name, amen. First, I want us to talk a little bit about communication and words, and even talk a little bit about a 16th century scholar. Last week, we heard in chapter 20 of of Acts, Paul left words of instruction to the elders in Ephesus. He told them specific things. He said, pay careful attention. Men will arise speaking twisted things. Be alert. And in verse 32 of chapter 20, Paul gave the source by which he felt he was confident that these people in Ephesus could survive the world and all that it would bring against them. He said this, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. So what if I said the word holy? What mental image comes to your mind? Is it a man in a robe locked away in a medieval castle quoting scripture? Or perhaps it's a particular person that you can think of who you felt is so dedicated, so unusual in their dedication to the Lord, you would call them holy. Well, neither one of those definitions would be the biblical definition for holy. Communication, particularly 
complex communication is a human trait. Communication is not just simply speaking or transmitting information. It is receiving information. You've not had communication until both of those things happen. In fact, a prolonged deficit in this single trait, communication, can sink a marriage. Good communication can make a marriage a source of great fulfillment. As I wrote that paragraph in this sermon, I thought this might be the point where I need to apologize to my wife. Communication, as we know, can be performed and received through many methods. Today we have text messages, we have emails, we have social media posts. You can communicate through body language and you can sing communication. Our communication, though, is important for us because it is absolute proof that we are made in the image of our Creator. He has communicated with us. He's spoken through prophets, through angelic visitations, through dreams, through creation and nature. God is a God of communication. Let's take a little test. I'm going to say some words, and I want you to think about what these words mean to you. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. What did that bring up in your mind? If it was the book of Hebrews, you have properly received communication. We primarily communicate with each other in the same manner that God communicates with us, through words. This provides a perfect opportunity for me to remind all of us that the Orthodox Christian teaching and our own statement of faith says that every word of Scripture is infallible. Every word of Scripture is reliable. Every word of Scripture has meaning. Even the pronouns and the adjectives were given by the Holy Spirit in a specific way in order to reveal God to His people so we can understand who God is and what He wants from us. My wife likes to watch cooking shows. And I like to spend time with my wife, so I've watched a lot of cooking shows. The Great American Baking Championship, the Great British Baking Championship, the Spring Baking Championship, the Summer Championship, the Halloween Baking Competition, the Holiday Baking Competition, most recently the Silo Baking Contest. <laughs> the point I'm making is that I've, I've sat under a lot of communication a lot of information has give, been given to me about baking. But I have not been communicated with about baking because I've not received a single word of that communication. To this day, I have yet to bake anything. Not even a slice and bake cookie. Recently, we were watching one of these shows and two commercials came on back to back. The first commercial was a Tide detergent commercial followed right immediately by a gain detergent commercial. In the gain commercial, the image was shown of two people standing on opposite sides of a bed holding a comforter to their cheek um, and soaking in the gain freshness. We read and we heard in 1 Timothy the word gentleness. If what comes to your mind when we say the word gentle is someone holding a comforter to their cheek or some other similar image, you have not properly received 
what the scriptural admonition means when it says, be gentle. Every word of scripture has meaning. The meaning of that word is in what was intended by the Holy Spirit when it inspired, when the Holy Spirit inspired the scripture. God's communication to us is specific and it's truthful, and that makes it reliable. Let's consider one of the most important words in all of Scripture, the word righteous. When the Catholic scholar Erasmus went back to the original Greek manuscripts and published his Latin translation of those Greek words into, from Greek into Latin of the New Testament in 1516, he had no intention of starting a reformation. In fact, he dedicated that translation to the Pope and he remained a lifelong Catholic. But the translation that he made of the word righteous returned the word to its original meaning in the Greek, which meant God making a legal declaration of a person to be just and right before him. The mental image of the word righteous scripturally is a person standing before God as a, as a judge and God delivering a not, verdi, ver, not guilty verdict. This caused men like Luther and Calvin and Cranmer to have an even more grounds to oppose the medieval Catholic Church, which was the only church of the time, because the church was teaching that a person was made righteous with God by a combination of their own good works and God's grace. The Reformation recaptured the original meaning of the word righteous. Righteousness scripturally is an alien righteousness that we do not possess that is given to us by God. So I want to take a pause for a second and speak intentionally to anyone here who might be considering Christianity or perhaps you're, Christ, you're considering what it means to be, have Christ as your Savior. This is what I want to tell you from the word righteous. You must possess righteousness to stand before God. That is the only condition, the only state whereby you have any standing or approach Him. This righteousness cannot come from you yourself. It must be provided for you. If you would like to talk about that further after the church has ended, I'd love to do so. Secondly, I want us to look at context. Communication is critical. Communication involves words, but all words have context. Terry and I recently in May took a trip to Mississippi and we were traveling up I-25. We pulled up behind a tanker truck, one of those big trucks, but instead of having a box on the back, it has a tank that's meant to transport liquids. On the back of the tanker truck it said this, on the weekends, we deliver milk. So what mental image comes up in your mind when you think of those words on the back of a tanker truck? Perhaps cows in a pasture, or a dairy farm, or a tanker full of milk being delivered to, for uh, processing. Well, the tanker wasn't traveling as fast as I like to, so I was going around him, and on the side of the tanker, I received a shock. It said, Owl's Sewage Service. That completely changes what those words on the back of that tanker meant, right? Al's either a very funny guy, or he's got a terrible thing that he does to people on the weekends. <laughs> Context matters for words. 
What about the words, I love you? Beautiful words, necessary words. Words that go right to the soul of a person. But when these words are spoken in a context intended to manipulate, or a context that lacks any commitment, they become twisted words, even evil words. This was the reason that when dating time came around with my children, I cautioned them about speaking those words to anyone that they were not yet ready to make a commitment to. When, God, when the Holy Spirit wrote the words in Scripture, God so loved the world, the context was a full commitment of life. I love you should be in the context of commitment. It should mean things like, I would die for you. I will stay with you. I will defend you. I desire only you. Let's look quickly at one other phrase from Scripture. Fill in the blank. I hate... Fill it in, blank. You probably shrink back a little bit at sticking anything in that blank because we're trained to be polite and restrained and have tolerance. So you might be surprised to find that the Scripture actually encourages us to hate something. One of the marks of a true believer in Romans chapter 12 is this verse. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. The scripture even uses a very strong word there. It says to abhor what is evil. If the context of our hate is what is evil, we find ourselves right in line with God's will for us. Well, why have I spent a little bit of introductory time talking about words and communication and context? And I want to be honest with you, I have two ideas in mind. The first is a concern I have a deep concern, and it grows, it seems, in my heart over time. The concern is that we in the Western church have so trivialized our approach to God's Word that we do two things. We place people's souls in danger, and we render the study of God's Word unappealing to so many people among us. So I thought what I would do today is emphasize that words that we're going to look at, haven't even gotten there yet, are important. That they are a communication from God to us. And that they have a context that we should look into. That makes the word of God less trivial. And I also am offering to you a way of thinking about God's word and using it in your life. An approach to scripture. Alright, are you ready? 1 Timothy 6.11 But as for you, O man of God, flee all these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. The first thing I want us to do to approach these words, which we're going to look at, is the context of these words. The first context is right there in the Scripture. It's man of God. The Holy Spirit intends these words of admonition to be to those who belong to God, those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Timothy, he's a pastor in Ephesus. So these words are surely to be taken seriously by any person who has a position of leadership in a church body. Pastor, elder, teacher, whatever that is, listen to these words. They are for you. 
But we know that the Holy Spirit inspired the Scripture for all of God's people. So we could say that all of God's people, all of us who claim Christ, are to be people who pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. The context of man of God is to to send the same message that I used to try to send to my children. You belong. You have a name. Conduct yourself accordingly. God informs his people first that they belong to him. We are bought with a price. We are not our own. This is why Paul repeatedly called himself the bondservant of Jesus. That's the context of the man of God. But there's more to the man of God than that. The phrase man of God also indicates to Timothy and to us that we are people who have God's power. When we flee from and pursue, we don't do so out of panic or out of fear. We do so with the enabling power of God who is able to set us free from any temptation that we face. Man of God means power of God. Lastly, man of God informs us that we have the presence of God. God makes the commitment of I love you to support us. I am with you. I will never leave you. You are the man of God. Man of God, context for these words. We are God's possession. We have God's power. And we live always with God's presence. Next, I want us to look at the other context that's in this scripture. Flee and pursue. This is one of the most important ideas in Scripture. It's taught in many different ways through the New Testament. And it really boils down to this. If you want to overcome the world, if you want to live for God, if you want to pursue these things, you cannot do so from a position of passivity. It takes zeal. It takes effort. It takes discipline. It takes energy. It takes focus. You cannot do it from passivity. Listen to these words from Matthew. This is Jesus' teaching. And let these words kind of run around in your brain and think about them. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. Well, what in the world does the nature of demons have to do with an instruction for God for us to pursue something? The the portrait that Jesus painted was a house that had been swept, put in order, and it was just sitting there with nothing, no activity going on. Pursue means active. It means filling our lives with things of God. Activity and zeal should be what marks a believing person. Never slothfulness. Never being passive. We flee while we pursue. As we flee the old nature and the old way of life, we pick up new things. This is why Bible study, prayer, a community of faith are not just words, or not just disciplines, or not just things we do. They are things that we do to fill our lives with the things of God as we pursue His God-like character. Timothy was instructed to avoid the love of money. That was one of the things that 
Paul was concerned about for Timothy. Well, how was Timothy supposed to do that? He was to actively remind himself all the time of what he possessed in his father and the father's kingdom. And he was to surround himself with people who would help him remember that. That's what flee and pursue means. So let's look at the words now, the actual words of the text that we're going to think about today. J.R.W. Scott looked at this text, and this is what he said. We are to deny ourselves and follow Christ, to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness and self-control, to take off the old clothing which belonged to our previous life and put on the new which belongs to our Christian life. Here, we are to run away from evil and run after goodness. The portrait is not of a house that has been swept and put in order and nothing happens. The portrait is one where there's a lot of activity going on in the heart. Last week, Pastor Chris told us that there was a context that Paul was speaking to Timothy from, and that was the context of false teachers who would come in to the church. Pastor Chris told us that false teachers contradict sound doctrine, they contradict godly practice, They promote controversy, and they use ministry as a source to fill their greedy hearts. We are to run away from what is false by pursuing what is true. First word, faith. Faith is the internal status of trust in God. We believe, as his people, that his view of the world is the right view. We believe that his path leads to joy and peace. We know his word, we know his promises, and that's where we stand. So, if we were going to overcome the love of money, one of the things that Timothy was uh, warned to avoid, and I want to use this one because this is particularly a temptation, it is particularly a place where we can trip up in our Western society and in the Christian church. How do we overcome the love of money? Well, we believe his word and we trust him when he says all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We see those words. We embrace those words. We trust that God is telling us truth and right and good. And we stand on those words. We do so by trusting our Savior who said this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in or steal. If there is any truth that we should be considering at our time and in our age, it should be this. Look at all of church history. We should have learned the lesson by now that at any time, at any moment, even suddenly, we could lose everything that we possess. It could happen through a stock market crash or it could happen through the government coming and taking it. Faith reminds us that all that we have in this world to be lost is nothing compared to the kingdom of God and to the kingdom of our Lord. Fleeing and pursuing means that We continually evaluate life with that type of a mindset, trusting the words of God. 
reminding our heart, reminding our mind, singing the words of truth over ourselves to keep our minds focused. Paul spoke the same truth to Timothy just a little bit earlier in Timothy chapter 6. He said, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Faith means yes, that's true. I'm standing on that word. If the communication we receive from the world contradicts what God has said to us, we flee from it and we pursue faith. The second word is love. It's important to pay special attention to how the scriptures seem to tie faith and love together in a bundle. This is all, all often the case. This is instructional because it's telling us that only affection can ultimately cause us to flee what is ungodly and pursue what is godly. Faith and love, love and faith, they go together. I trust God because I know God, and when I know God, I love God. Although we cannot deny that fleeing the world is surely tied to such things as habits, and discipline, avoiding temptation, even willpower, it is only love acting in faith that will bring us lasting success in overcoming the world. Faith informs the mind, love informs the heart. Repeating to ourselves the wonders of God's grace and His mercy fortifies our soul as we pursue what is right. What quality was it that the false teachers lacked? It was love. They weren't motivated by love for God, nor were they motivated by love for other people. We must flee the kind of religion that disconnects the heart and the mind. When the affections of the soul join with a mind that is saturated with God's truth, it becomes a bond that isn't easily broken. Unrestrained love will joyfully submit to God in faith. Do you desire godliness? That's one of the words that we looked at last week. Well, set your heart on Jesus. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Love is the highest virtue for a reason. It is only love that contains the power to enable us to flee from our fallen self and pursue being a bondservant to the Lord Jesus Christ. Only love will do that. The, le the next word is steadfastness. Tying ourselves to Christ, here's the hard truth in these words, will bring hardship. Paul knew this well. He experienced it personally. And Jesus warned his church of this truth. Determination is essential if we are going to flee what is wrong and pursue what is right. We haven't experienced very much of the need for steadfastness in the Western world. But it's not that way around the globe. You may have noticed this. The world does not like resistance. It makes every effort to mold you into its image. And if you refuse to be molded, the world will slander you, or ostracize you, or hate you, or possibly even in the future, persecute you. Steadfastness translates to remain under. Remain under. In the Old Testament, when a prophet would receive a word or a vision from God, it was called a Massah. 
and it meant to carry a burden. The prophet could not be relieved of this burden until the full word of God that he had been given had been spoken. For Jeremiah, it meant 40 or 50 years of rejection. We must be so convinced of our victory. We must be so settled in our mind that God's way is the right way. We must be so sure that there's coming a day when those who stand with Christ will be found to be the ones who are right. That we do not worry about the, the problems that arise in our life so much that it causes us to faint or to fall. We remain steadfast. Tim Keller recently went to be with the Lord, and I want to offer you a quote of some of his wise words as we contemplate being steadfast for Christ. Words of Tim Keller. There are the good things in this world, the hard things of this world, and the best things of this world. The best things are God's love, glory, holiness, and beauty. The Bible's teaching is that the road to the best things is not through the good things, but usually through the hard things. There is no message more contrary to the way the world understands life or more subversive to its values. When we decide to flee the things of the world and pursue God and godliness, we become subversives in the culture in which we live because the culture hates God. This feeling of being an ostracized, this feeling of being out of place, this feeling of being rejected, this feeling of being, I don't feel right here. It demands commitment. Jesus spoke of this. He said these words, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So our challenge is to do what's unusual, to be people of our word, to stand by our commitments. The last word here is gentleness. It's the word I teased you with a little bit earlier. Do you imagine somebody holding a comforter to their cheek? Gentleness. Well, I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 18 with me. This is the biblical picture of gentleness. John chapter 18. We're going to start with verse 3 and go down to verse 12. This is a very familiar story to you, I'm sure, but I want to pull out just a little focus today. I'm going to start with verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now Jesus said to them, I am he, and they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. 
Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the bands of soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. This is what we are being called to by the word gentle. A band of armed thugs arrive in the garden. Jesus steps up and by saying three simple words, I am he, he demonstrates that he has the power to destroy him, them if he wants to. At just these three words, they all fall down. But instead of striking out, instead of destroying, instead of using his power, Jesus chooses to heal the one that has been wounded and surrenders himself to be bound in order to serve his mission. Gentleness means that we are people under power. We are restrained. We are controlled. We do not hurl back insults. We do not strike back in revenge. We are not troublemakers in our communities. We follow Christ and we restrain ourselves in order to serve his purposes in the world, in order to pursue gentleness. We are gentle because we believe God. We believe his promises. We are gentle because we love him and we love others. We are gentle because we remain steadfast under our burden that God has given to us. I'd like to make some application now of what we've talked about this morning. The first one is I want to challenge you, all of you, and myself too, to be a student of God's Word. It is His revelation. It is His communication. It is important and necessary for our very souls to survive. So as you read a text in the Bible, ask yourself good questions. What is God's truth that he's saying here? Why did Paul not just say Timothy instead of calling him man of God? What was he trying to communicate to Timothy? Why did he use the images of fleeing and pursuing? What's the message that's contained there? Don't just simply fly through the word or trivially read it and move on. Study the Word, soak it up, saturate it, let it fill your heart and your life. And I particularly make that challenge to you younger people here today as you're getting started. Number two, I want you to avail yourself of every opportunity to engage with the Word of God. We open the Word of God here on Wednesday nights. Our children are taught the Word of God on Wednesdays in a group. In Sunday school, we emphasize the Word of God. And we try to make the Word of God central to everything we do in the worship service. Avail yourself of every opportunity you have to be involved and engaged with the Word of God. My third application is that it is Father's Day. So I want to challenge the men. You have been given a place of honor. Given to you by God Himself. Be passionate about the Word of God in your family, and in your church. Be passionate about implanting the Word of God into the lives of those who live with you. You do not have to have an education. You do not have to be a scholar. You do not have to understand the Greek. None of that applies to you taking hold of the Word of God and teaching it to your family and speaking to your family about it. That is a place of great honor that has been given to you by the Lord. 
My last application is something I hope to give you as a gift. Um, it'll be a free gift, and you can freely choose to not take advantage of it if you wish to. In my Bible, I have started over the years collecting things that meant something to me and helped me make it in certain situations, things I wanted to remind myself of. So in the front of my Bible, I have a list. It's entitled, How to Identify Your Idols. What do you worry about most? What if you failed? Would it cause you to feel that you didn't even want to live? What do I use to comfort myself when things go bad? A way to identify what's an idol in my life. Another one is, love not the world. Why? Well, I've listed 20 reasons that the Bible gives us to not love the world. Things like that are in my scriptures. So I thought what I would try to do is to give you this one verse, 1 Timothy 6.11, as a gift and organize it in this way. I've got 50 copies on the table. If you're interested in having something like this, you can take it. It might be a reminder to you for the future. Here's what it will say. Our status, man of God. We are blessed, chosen, holy, blameless, loved, forgiven, adopted, redeemed, purposed, sealed, and guaranteed. That's Ephesians 1, 3-14. Our task, to flee and pursue. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, that we are not to conform to this world, but we are to transform our minds so that we may be able to test what the will of God is. That's our task. Our standing is righteousness. We are made righteous in Christ. Romans 5, 19. Our mindset is godliness. 2 Peter 1, 3-4. We have the power and the knowledge that has already been granted to us to obtain everything we need for godliness in the world. Our foundation is faith. We stand on what we believe. 1 Peter 2.6 Our assurance is love. Christ is in us and He has filled us up to the fullness with His Holy Spirit. We cannot even comprehend the depth of the love that Christ has for us. Ephesians 3.17-19 Our goal is to be steadfast. 1 Peter 5.8-11 calls us to be resistant, confirmed, and established. And lastly, our demeanor, how we act in the world. And that's the word gentleness. Colossians 3.12, compassionate, kind, humble, and patient. It's my hope that that will mean something to you, and it's free to you on the back table as you leave. I'd like to close with a short prayer from the Valley of Vision. Let's pray. Give me deeper knowledge of you as Savior, Master, Lord, and King. Give me deeper power in private prayer, more sweetness in your word, a more steadfast grip on its truth. Give me deeper holiness in speech, thought, action, and let me not seek moral virtue apart from you. Amen.